When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Now, I didn't think that it would be a month uh, before I got back to the Celtic myths, but here we are. And so I thought that a good way back into the subject would be with a very small tale, uh, a short myth that is also extremely representative of many of the others and of the universe of the Celtic myths as we have them. Uh, This will actually be the the first story that I read from that comes from the great uh, Irish epic, The Dying Bow Cúnia. And before I read from it, uh, I just wanted to uh, share one paragraph, the introductory paragraph about the Tyne from James McKillop's Dictionary of Celtic Mythology. Now, about 10 years or so ago, uh, one of the best ways that I found of getting into and absorbing uh, world religions and uh, mythologies from all over the place, happened to be reading dictionaries of such-and-such mythology dictionaries or reference works like this. And James McKillop's uh, Dictionary of Celtic Mythology was easily one of the best of them. Um, I can't praise it highly enough. And it just so happens that he also published a sort of companion volume, volume, which is called Myths and Legends of the Celts, which, if anything, uh, for the uh, uninitiated, which includes me, I am still uh, uh, basically a neophyte at a great deal of this. I am simply a poet dealing with this material uh, as a poet would, not as a scholar necessarily. Uh, For the sake of those who need it, uh, at the very end of Myths and Legends of the Celts is a nice uh, guide to pronunciation of names and terms in the stories. Um, But it is also, uh, as far as I can tell, an amazing guide uh, to the stories and the narratives uh, in a way that uh, that that the dictionary itself cannot be. And I will probably be reading, uh, eventually, from both the dictionary and uh, the more accessible book, Myths and Legends of the Celts, at some point. But from just the first paragraph of uh, his description of the Tyne Bocunia, James MacKillop calls it the greatest work of classical Irish literature, an epic or epic-like saga, and the key text of the Ulster Cycle, 
The central action pits Queen Maeve of Connacht against the Ulster hero Cahollan, as well as uh, now the uh, the Tyne Bolcunia is known in English usually as the Cattle Raid of Cooley, and the the really the main contending forces uh, in the work are uh, the cattle in question. The white bull and the brown bull uh, are, I don't know what you would you'd sort of call them, the totemic animals of the story. Uh, the way I heard it, uh, quite wonderfully put years ago, was that uh, there are so many stories, not just among the Celts, but other cultures as well, of cattle raids, cattle raiding. Uh, you have that, that, it, that the idea of a cattle raid where where animals were the main currency of a culture and of a people, of an agrarian people. Uh, a cattle raid was the equivalent of uh, panzers, panzer tanks, or even of atomic bombs at the time, um, especially when you get uh, wheel chariots uh, driven by horses into the mix. Uh, it is something that can uh, overrun uh, an area or a people that is not prepared for it. And that's a nice way of thinking of what, uh, of what might be going on here. But in a certain, simply in a literary sense, uh, James MacKillop goes on to say that the initial composition of the Tainbo Cunha, uh, in both prose and verse, because there are sections of prose and verse together, date from the 7th and the 8th centuries with texts surviving in the Book of the Dun Cow, which is dated to roughly 1100, and the Book of Leinster, which is dated to roughly 1160, as well as the Yellow Book, excuse me, the Yellow Book of Lecan, which is dated to roughly 1390. And he says, the many revisions and interpolations indicate a trend from the lean prose and sharp humor of the earlier passages to the bombast, florid alliteration and sentimentality of the later passages. And he also mentions that uh, by the time you get to the later versions uh, of, the, of the story, uh, suddenly there are seven foretales, seven sort of prologues. Uh, which he, let's see, preceding then is a 19th century anecdote, uh, seven sort of short stories that precede the Tyne and which sort of foretell it or are linked to it. Um, if you remember, the very first story that I read here, which I don't think is considered one of the prologue stories, uh, The Dream of Agnes, uh, at the very end it says, uh, this is how the friendship between Elil and Maeve and the Mac Ock Rose, and this is why Aeneas took 300 to the cattle raid of Kulnia. Um, it seems, uh, and I hope that my reading of MacKillop and other sources will bear this out, that at some point the idea of this story, of this cattle raid, of uh, which involved a famous queen, uh, Maeve, and uh, perhaps the most famous of the Irish heroes, Cúhalan, um, at some point, it became uh, 
the idea of the story became central and it became sort of a magnet for smaller stories so that it only took a small story or even a large one with a, a little line at the end of it to tack onto it to say, and this is how these people became involved with the cattle raid of Cunha. It became a kind of thing to uh, glom your story onto. You can almost imagine uh, poets or writers of the time finding ways to attach their story to the story of the Dain Bulkunya, uh, probably in the way that uh, we might imagine that the Iliad or the Odyssey was written. And for centuries afterwards, there were um, many tales, as far as I'm aware, uh, many uh, epic poems. I think it was mostly in verse at the time and eventually uh, in prose in Greece. Uh, of adding to or fleshing out the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And now that I think of it, that's not too far removed either from the uh, from the Midrash uh, of, uh, of Judaism, where you have the uh, you have the set text of the Torah. Uh, you have an unchanging text uh, or story of what happened to Moses or Adam and Eve or Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you can't modify the text. You can't change it after a while. At some point, it becomes fixed. But you have creative people, and you have the need to make the story mean something new uh, for each generation, or for each week, even month, year, or generation. And so you have people who want to fill in the story, and this is just what happens. Uh, this is just what happens when people come across or create stories that mean something so much to their culture. They want to add to it. Um, and so this is just the, this is just a small story that precedes the Tyne. And it is the story of how, uh, as this says, uh, uh, the quarrel of the two pig keepers and how the two bulls were begotten. And I should say that the version of the time that I'm reading from comes from that magnificent book uh, uh, by Thomas Kinsella, Thomas Kinsella, simply called The Tyne, from the Irish epic Tyne Bokulnia. Um, many people who know about Irish literature out there will be aware and will probably be able to uh, uh, give a textual history much better than I, I can uh, to say that the, the versions of the time that we have uh, are one or two or three main versions that are different in many respects, as uh, James McKillop said. Uh, you move on from the lean and the humorous to the sort of bombastic, bombastic and sentimental. Um, and what Thomas Kinsella does and I'm sure that I could find a quote from him in his introduction that I will use next time, uh, is sort of choose the bits that he wants to include. And that seems to be the best way to go with some of this material. Um, even if it isn't perhaps the scholarly thing to do, it is, if you want the stories to live, the, uh, it is the poetic thing to do. 
uh, and in the way that things go many times, where you become attached to a certain translation uh, or a certain edition of a book or a poem. Um, I have leaned on this book uh, for so long, almost 20 years now, and one of my favorite lines of poetry comes from uh, an old friend of mine who, uh, I can't even remember what his poem was about, except that in the middle of it, it, it had a line that said something like, and there on the shelf was the book, the time, and I knew right away that he was talking about uh, Kinsella's edition. So, as I mentioned last time in the first episode on the Celtic myths, one of the things that they like to do is uh, to sort of uh, to sort of express their connection to animal life and to nature is to have humans and animals changing shapes constantly. You could even, as I've hoped to do, just write uh, a long book just on the metamorphoses of the Celtic myths of people changing shape. And even though this is one of the prologue poems and uh, or prologue tales to the time, and even though that means that this uh, story would apparently be late, a late story, um, it feels to me like it had to have been one of the earlier ones. Uh, lean prose and sharp humor. There's definitely a bit of that going on here, as well as uh, uh, the usual tendency in these myths of uh, finding excuses to simply document names and the names of people and the names of landscapes, and in this case, to simply do uh, uh, a genealogy of two bulls that lead to uh, a great war in Ireland. So this is a reading of The Quarrel of the Two Pig Keepers and How the Bulls Were Begotten from the edition of the Tyne translated by the Irish poet Thomas Kinsella. There was bad blood between Ochal Ochne, the king of the Sheed in Connaught, and Bove, king of the Munster Sheed. Bove's Sheed is the Sheed are Femen, the Sheed on Femen Plain. Ogal's is the Sheed at Hruachen. They each had two pig keepers called Hruach after the boar's bristle and Rucht after its grunt. Hruach was Bove's pig keeper and Rucht was Ogal's, and they were good friends. They were both practiced in the pagan arts and could form themselves into any shape like Mongan Macfiachna. The two pig keepers were on such good terms that the one from the north would bring his pigs down with him when there was a mast of oak and beech nuts in Munster. If the mast fell in the north, the pig keeper from the south would travel northward. There were some who tried to make trouble between them, though. People in Connaught said their pig keeper had the greater power, while others in Munster said it was theirs who had greater power. And a great mast fell in Munster one year, and the pig keeper from the north came southward with his pigs, 
His friend made him welcome. Is it you, he said? They are trying to cause trouble between us. Men here say your power is greater than mine. It is no less anyway, Ochal's pigkeeper said. That is something we can test, Bove's pigkeeper said. I'll cast a spell over your pigs. Even though they eat this mast, they won't grow fat while mine will. And that is what happened. Ochal's pigkeeper had to bring his pigs away with him so lean and wretched that they hardly reached home. Everybody laughed at him as he entered his country. It was a bad day you set out, they said. Your friend has greater power than you. It proves nothing, he said. We'll have mast here in our own turn, and I'll play the same trick on him. This also happened. Bove's pig keeper came northward the same time next year into the country of Connaught bringing his lean pigs with him. And Ochal's pig keeper did the same to them, and they withered. Everybody said that they had equal power. Bove's pig keeper came back from the north with his lean pigs, and Bove dismissed him from pig keeping. His friend in the north was also dismissed. This is, uh, I suppose, what happens when people lose their jobs. Uh, this is what can happen. After this, they spent two full years in the shape of birds of prey, the first year at the fort of Kruchen in North Connaught, and the second at the Sheed on Femen Plain. One day the men of Munster had collected together at this place. Those birds are making a terrible babble over there, they said. They have been quarreling and, behave li and have been behaving like this for a full year now. As they were talking, they saw Huidal Mac Fidamer, Ochal's steward, coming toward them up the hill, and they made him welcome. Those birds are making a great babble over there, he said. You would swear they were the same two birds we had back north last year. They kept this up for a whole year. Then they saw the two birds of prey turn suddenly into human shape and become the two pig-keepers, and they made them welcome. You can spare your welcome, Bove's pig-keeper said. We bring you only war wailing and a fullness of friends' corpses. What have you been doing, Bove said. Nothing good, he said. From the day we left until today, we spent two full years together in the shape of birds. You saw that. You saw what we did over there. A whole year went like that at Kruchen, and a year at the Sheed on Femen Plain, so that all men, north and south, have seen our power. Now we are going to take the shape of water creatures and live two years under the sea. They left, and each went his own way. One entered the Xianan River, the other at the River Sirur, and they spent two full years underwater. One year they were seen devouring each other in the seer, and the next in the shinan. Next they turned into two stags, and each gathered up the other's herd of young deer and made a shambles of his dwelling place. Then they became two warriors, gashing each other. Then two phantoms, terrifying each other. Then two dragons, 
pouring down snow on each other's land. They dropped down then, out of the air, and became two maggots. One of them got into the spring of the river Kron at Kulnia, where a cow belonging to Der Merfiaka drank it up. The other got into the wellspring Garad in Kanat, where a cow belonging to Maeve and Eilil drank it. From them, in this way, sprang the two bulls, Finanbenach, the white-horned of Iplain, and Dub, the dark bull of Kulnia. Rucht and Fuch were their names, when they were pig keepers, Injin and Eita, Talon and Wing, when they were two birds of prey, Bled and Blood, Whale and Sea Beast, when they were two undersea creatures, Rin and Febor, Point and Edge, when they were two warriors, Scath and Skath, Shadow and Shield, when they were two phantoms, Enukruanach and Tuyanach, when they were two maggots, Finanbarai the white and Don Kulnia the brown were their names, when they were two bulls. And we see here just how important it is, not just what they did, but what the name was. The name is as important as the physical thing. And uh, the story ends with this poem. This was the brown bull of Kulnia. Dark brown, dire, haughty, with young health. Horrific, overwhelming, ferocious, full of craft. Furious, fiery flanks, narrow. Brave, brutal, thick-breasted. Curly-browed, head-cocked high. Growling and eyes glaring. Tough-maned, neck thick and strong. Snorting, excuse me, snorting, mighty in muzzle and eye, with a true bull's brow and a wave's charge, and a royal wrath, and the rush of a bear and a beast's rage and a bandit's stab, and a lion's fury. Thirty grown boys could take their place, from rump to nape. A hero to his herd at morning, foolhardy at the herd's head, to his cows the beloved, to husbandmen a prop, the father of great beasts, overlooks the ox of the earth. And a white head and white feet had the bull Finanbenach, and a red body the color of blood, as if bathed in blood, or dyed in the red bog, or pounded in purple with his blank paps under the breast and back, and his heavy mane and great hoofs, the beloved cows, the beloved of the cows of eye, with ponderous tail and a stallion's breast, and a cow's eye apple, and a salmon's snout, and a hinder haunch, he romps and rut, born to bear victory, bellowing in greatness, idol of the ox herd, the prime demon Fenon Benach. And that is the story as it is translated by Thomas Kinsella. And it goes on from there uh, in stories that I will summarize and probably read from uh, over the next coming weeks. But you can see there the, uh, the humor of what's happening. Uh, you can see the, as well the, the, the deep seriousness of the earth and the sea and the seasons and... Uh, the elements of uh, 
of living in a pre-modern world as we would know it, um, you can see the importance, uh, the deathly importance of these creatures, these animals. And I sort of wonder uh, what the equivalent of that would be today. The only thing I can think of is uh, our cars, but it's very hard, or, or uh, um, our fighter planes or something, I, I don't know, uh, what, what it is that we go to war for that could be the equivalent of, uh, of cattle, uh, imagining cattle as currency. And, um, and there's also kind of a uh, unintentional, because I don't think they're trying to be humble, but just a nice example of humility that the that these pig keepers um, could go through sort of this uh, comic dance of who is better at magic, lose their jobs, and end up uh, going through this this uh, this other dance of forms that leads to the great cycle of Irish poetry. It doesn't seem to be like the kind of thing. That, uh, that the Greeks would do by the time you get to 5th century Athens um, or uh, many other cultures now that I think of it. Uh, there's a wonderful earthiness to all of it. Um, I suppose I will leave it there uh, for now. And the next episode, which if you believe iTunes, which uh, may not be a trustworthy source sometimes, but if you believe iTunes, the next episode is the 100th episode of Human Voices Wake Us, and I have something uh, special planned for that. So until next time. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.